This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad you can be with us. And you just heard a spot that this week we have a virtual VBS And some are doing it in the morning hour when it's being broadcast, but it's also available at communitybiblechurch.us all day long. So some are doing it in the afternoons, some in the evenings. And so if you're looking for an opportunity to teach your children God's Word this week, I'm telling you, it is a tremendous program they've put together. And again, it's all available at communitybiblechurch.us. Now, for those who are listening for the very first time here to the Bible Line for the next hour, we are taking people's questions as it regards to maybe a passage of Scripture that has challenged you or a particular application of a biblical truth that you're seeking direction on. If we can help you in any way as it relates to your family or your ministry, uh, feel free, again, to call us at 843-525-1859. The 843-EXCHANGE, again, is 525-1859. Or if it's easier for you to remember, the 877 toll-free number is just the call letters, WAGP 980. Uh, some people prefer to text us here directly into the studio, and you can do so at TBL. That stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. And you can uh, send your question that way. If you do call, we always give uh, priority to live callers. uh, But many don't want to go on the air, and they're just comfortable dictating their question, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, with that said, uh, I think we've had some questions that have already come in, so let's go ahead and get started. Indeed, Pastor. Deborah from Beaufort writes, Is uh, Dr. Brogy familiar with the book Manners and Customs of the Bible by James M. Freeman? And if so, would he recommend it? I actually have that book in my library. Um, It was a a required read when I was at Dallas Seminary many, many years ago. Uh, It's a decent book, and it's actually written in the uh, late 1800s, and it was republished in the 1970s. I think they've updated a few things. It's a popular book, so I have no hesitation. There's a, a book called Haley's Bible Handbook. Uh, Haley, again, 19th century writer, and he put together uh, three little side-by-side compact books. One was um, Concordance. It's obviously limited because it's a small, compact size. And then he has one on customs in the Bible and a Bible dictionary. Uh, Manners and Customs of the Bible uh, by Freeman is kind of a combination of a Bible dictionary along with, you know, specific things that relate to manners and customs during the Bible time. Again, it's a simple one-volume work. Uh, If you want to go a little bit further, uh, there's what they call their Zondervan Pictorial Bible Encyclopedia. I bought that in the 1980s. And again, you go online sometimes and you can find these books for a song 
uh, you know, a, a book like that on hardback would probably, the Zondervan cost you, I don't know, two to $250. You might find it used for $30, but that would be, again, much more extensive in terms of the articles that are written, a lot more detail. But if you have Freeman's book, you've got a good book. It's conservative. It's consistent uh, with uh, a biblical worldview, um, and he was a godly man and made a great impact for Christ. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Sean, also from Buford, wants to know what you think about an increasing number of pastors like Chuck Swindoll, Jack Graham, and David Jeremiah Quoting from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Well, let me just say, first of all, those are all good men. Uh, they're, they're, they're good, godly men, and, um, you know, they're having an impact for Christ. So I don't want to dismiss that. And I would say that I myself uh, quoted once from Eugene Patterson's book, and uh, it's called The Message. It's done by one, one fella. It's what we call a paraphrased translation. There are different kinds of uh, translations. There's what we call fluid equivalent, dynamic equivalents, and paraphrases. A paraphrase translation is on the far side of the spectrum, on the opposite spectrum of being literal. In some paraphrase translations, like the Living Bible, which was a very popular paraphrase that came out initially in the 1970s, or uh, J.B. Phillips, one of the very first paraphrase translations that came out in England in the 1950s, New Testament only. Again, what they would do is they would take a verse of the Bible and they would try to put it in simpler language for someone to understand. Uh, the advantage uh, to a paraphrase translation is if someone had limited reading skills, it allowed them to you know, study God's Word and to be able to read something that they could maybe grasp a little bit more easily. I don't think that's a reason not to improve your reading and writing skills, but still that's that was one of the options uh, behind it. The King James was typically written on a 10th or 11th grade level. Reading level is how they would define it, um, whereas uh, a paraphrase translation was usually written on a 5th or a 6th grade uh, reading level. The problem with a paraphrase is that it becomes a commentary. Uh, because if I take a verse of the Bible and I try to put it in my own words, then I'm not really um, interpreting, uh, just simply translating. There's a certain amount of interpretation going on. Rick, can you pull up, uh, you have Logos, I think, on your computer, and pull up the message, and uh, maybe I can give you some, actually, I, I, I um, uh, yeah, you can pull it up, and I'll give you some verses to look at. So let me just first comment about Eugene Peterson's work. Initially, what he did is he... Um, he wrote a um, he wrote a copy of um, the book of Galatians and he he put it together. Um, Rick, I think I actually have it here, so let me. I'll just I'll just do it myself. Save you a little time here, but if you can pull it up, that will that will be really helpful. You got it? Okay. So um, let me give you some examples in terms of what he does. Uh, go to Galatians three, if you would, and let's look at a couple verses. Galatians three, two and three. And let me read it first out of a more literal Bible, uh, like the New American Standard, uh, Galatians chapter 3. And uh, let me read verses um, 2 and 3. Actually, I'll start in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? 
This is the only thing I want to know. I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with, with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, read that same section, if you will, Galatians 3, 1 to 3, out of the message. This is Eugene Paris, uh, Peterson's work. All right. You crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God, or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? Is it, it is not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. Okay, so that's a paraphrase, and you'll immediately notice what he left out. There's absolutely no mention of God the Holy Spirit in his paraphrase. In fact, that's one of the things he consistently does throughout his paraphrase version And by the way, I've taught a course on bibliology. It's available at searchthescriptures.org. It's not for the faint of heart. It's over 500 pages of notes that I've compiled for people who take it. Some take it in the Institute of Biblical Studies. But section six of my course on bibliology uh, deals with um, the English translations. And so uh, clearly um, we go through the message. Let's look up another verse, Rick. Uh, Let's go to Acts chapter 2 in verse 38, Acts 2, 38. Uh, I'm just going to give you just a sampling of what Eugene Peterson is doing, Acts 2 in verse 38. And let's see how, uh, let me read it first, uh, just to give you the context. It's the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching to Jewish people, and they realize that the one whom they rejected, the one who they said was a, a false Messiah, was indeed the Messiah. And so they ask a question, and they say, Brethren, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's answer is this in Acts 2.38, Repent. Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will say parenthetically here that people who are cultish in their theology who make baptism, a requirement for salvation, like the Church of Christ, sometimes Disciples of Christ. And as soon as I mention those two denominations, there's always an exception to the rule. But they would use Acts 2.38 uh, out of context, because again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And they would say, well, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And this is a verse uh, that uh, if you're listening to me today, you are going to be confronted with at some point. Someone is going to ask you how to deal with Acts 2.38, and you need to be able to give an intelligent answer. Let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. They'll say, see, it is right there. Be baptized in order to be forgiven. Therefore, if you are not baptized, you will not be saved. That's the argument. But the word for doesn't always mean that in the English Bible any more than it does in the English language. If I give you a medal for your bravery— It's not in order to be brave. It's because you're brave. And this little three-letter word, ace, E-I-S, is used in Luke 11.32, 
were they repented at or for or because of the preaching of John the Baptist. And that's the sense of it here. He is saying, let each of you be baptized, not in order to be forgiven, but because you are forgiven. I give you a medal because you are brave, not in order to be brave. And that's the thought behind it. Let's go to Peterson's translation, Acts 2.38. Peter said, change your life. Turn to God and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are forgiven. So your sins are forgiven. So he made it in order to be forgiven, not because you're forgiven. All right, let's look at one more example of his translation. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is uh, dealing, among other things, with people who think they are Christians, but they're really not. And he wants, he'll write in his second letter to the Corinthians to test yourself to see if you be of the faith. And so beginning in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. All right, read verses 9 and 10 uh, out of the message, if you would. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. A number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. Okay, good. Use and abuse the earth. Now, where does that come from? It is nowhere in the Greek text. Sounds like green theology dripping through his translation. And whatever happened to homosexuality? Oh, it's conveniently gone from his translation. Hey, look, so here's the, here's the challenge. Like I said, I quoted it once. I wish I could find out what sermon I did because I'd exit out. But then after some months went by, people started coming out, hey, have you read the, I said, well, I really haven't read it. I, I heard a one or two verses paraphrase. And, and that's not to say that every word that he paraphrased was inaccurate because it's not. But the reason I quoted him once was because he was put out on Nav Press and Navigators used to be a trusted organization. And of course, in the first year, if I remember, they sold 9 million copies. It made the Navigators wealthy. Uh, But number one, he was from New York Theological Seminary. So he went to a seminary that is what we would consider today an apostate seminary. They deny essential biblical truth, like the inerrancy of the Bible, like the deity of Christ. He went to seminary there. Not to mention when he makes this translation, he's a pastor in the PCUSA. Most of the conservative Bible-believing pastors by the late 80s had already jettisoned the PCUSA because there was a window in the mid-80s where they said, look, if your church wants to leave the PCUSA and become another denomination, you have two years to do it. And if you don't do it within that two years, then we will retain our property rights. Why were churches leaving? Because the PCUSA was ordaining people who, for instance, at the time were denying the deity of Christ. You could be ordained as a PCUSA pastor and not even believe that Jesus is God, that's absolute heresy. And so he chose to stay. Now, again, I don't know his motivations, but there are people within the PCUSA who don't even believe Eugene Patterson, um, Peterson was a a Christian. I I don't know. I don't don't know the man personally. 
But the more I read of the message, it's a horrendous translation. It's absolutely terrible in places. I just gave you a few observations. There's hundreds, and I would literally say hundreds, of paraphrastic verses where he totally butchered the text, changed the meaning of the text, and ended up misrepresenting the living God in his word. And I don't want to stand before God someday having grossly said, God said this when he didn't say it at all, or God didn't mean this, and so I paraphrased it this way. And so it's a very, very poor translation. And again, I think if, you know, again, I'm sure like if Swindoll uses it and others, it's because, well, it's nav press, you can trust the navigators. And and I should say parenthetically, it just came to my mind, Chuck Swindoll was led to Christ through the navigators. So I'm sure in that respect, when he was a young Marine, enlisted Marine, he came to faith in Christ through the nav ministry. So I'm sure he greatly appreciates the navigators, but they did a poor job when they chose to um, embrace this guy. And And they lauded his ability in the languages, and I think it's highly questionable that he had any solid knowledge at all. Let's go to the next caller. All right, we've got a live caller from Erie, Pennsylvania. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Hey, hey, how are you guys? Hey, um, doing well. Thanks. Pastor, I wanted to ask you about um, something I know you've heard before, but uh, how would how do you uh, respond, how does one respond to someone who is um, talking about uh, the Old Testament and uh, Hebrew laws, uh, uh, you know, prohibitions against eating shellfish, dietary laws, versus um, prohibitions against homosexuality and, and other things. And then, then I'm also confident that you probably can uh, direct me to some sermons that you've done on Search the Scriptures where I can uh, study that more. Yeah, no, great, great question. Let me see if I can respond to it. What we're re- what what you're really asking is the nature between the moral law and what we would call the ceremonial law. In other words, uh, the critic especially would say, well, you Christians aren't consistent. Over here it says you can't eat shellfish, and over here, well, there's this prohibition against homosexuality, and you're not even consistent. You know, you you eat the shellfish, but then you say the gay lifestyle is wrong, and so you're all convoluted, and why should we believe you or your Bible? And again, much like Peter said, there are people who distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. So there is a difference between the moral law and the ceremonial law. And the nature of the ceremonial law was that it either symbolized or separated the people of Israel for the plans and purposes that God had for them. There are many things in the ceremonial law that I think even most Christians would acknowledge we don't need to follow and respond to today. I doubt anyone tried to bring an animal sacrifice to church last week, assuming your church was open. Why not? Because of the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no need to bring an animal sacrifice. Why? Because the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament and the various kinds of offerings prefigured what God was going to accomplish in Christ. A one way, for instance, in which God separated and distinguished the people of Israel under the Old Covenant was through certain dietary laws, the way they cut their hair, uh, the way they dressed, etc., etc., um, under the new covenant, the way God distinguishes his people today is not so much externally as it is internally. Now, the internal work of the Spirit may influence our external decisions, but still the uh, inner working of the Spirit uh, that 
where he produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's how we are distinguished today as the people of God. Remember, under the old covenant, they did not have the Holy Spirit. That was the promise of the new covenant where God said, I'll put my spirit in them and they'll walk on my statutes and they'll all know me, not just a select few, but they'll all know me in a very special way from the greatest to the least of them. That's the promise of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. And that's what we are remembering, among other things. This is the blood of the new covenant every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating a new deal. So if there's a passage in the New Testament that clearly, definitively says this is part of God's moral law and not part of God's ceremonial law, or if there's a passage in the New Testament that overrides a practice indicating that it was clearly part of his ceremonial law, then we have a clear reason to understand what's applicable for today and what's not. So you mentioned... Uh, the uh, dietary issues. And if you remember, a couple passages come to mind. Uh, One is found in uh, Mark's gospel. And if you remember on occasion, um, people were all bent out of shape over, you know, the cleaning of your hands and, and what to do and uh, how, how to, how to keep your hands clean. And and Jesus said uh, to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Um, And so Jesus makes it very, very clear. He goes on and he, he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all meats clean. That's uh, Mark chapter 7 and verse 18. So there you have a, a definitive verse, Mark 7, 18 and 19, where the text says Jesus declared all meats clean. Uh, Then, of course, uh, Christ is giving Peter an illustration in Acts the 10th chapter. If you remember, um, God is working in a fellow's heart by the name of Cornelius, and an angel of God comes and uh, tells him to go to such and such a place. And and Peter, if you remember, he's in a a little town called Caesarea, and uh, he's he's, uh, up on top of a roof, and uh, actually he's in Joppa, and um, Cornelius is coming from Caesarea, and he's in Joppa. Uh, Joppa is an important place today. It's a, a more modern-day Tel Aviv, but Joppa, if you remember, is a place where Jonah got in a boat and went in the wrong direction. And uh, anyway, he's um, he's uh, in noontime has this vision where this sheet comes down from the sky, and the in Acts ten twelve says, and they were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air, and a voice came, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy or unclean. In other words, he's saying, what I see here in this sheet are foods not fit for a Jew. Why? Because God called them to a kosher diet, and God spells out uh, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus what foods were permissible to eat and what were not, what were considered clean and what's unclean. And a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And just so he couldn't miss it, this happened three times. 
and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. And of course, God never uses an illustration with error in it to teach truth. The truth that he's going to teach as you read through Acts chapter 10 is that God has not made a separation between Jew and Gentile. Paul will articulate this in Ephesians, that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been removed. God's formed one body. It's called the church. That's not to say that God's um, abandoned the nation of Israel. In fact, he is going to culminate human history through the nation of Israel. In Jeremiah 31, where God gives the promise of a new covenant, obviously most Jews didn't embrace the new covenant. They rejected Jesus. But right after he makes that promise, he says, look up into the sky as long as you see the sun and the stars and the moon up there. That's how long I'm committed to Israel. So there are people today who say the church is the new Israel, and they misinterpret Scripture. But here's the point, is that he said, Peter, you can eat anything, and he was driving home a point about the relationship between Jew and Gentile. So we have some clear passages like Mark uh, 7, Acts 10, where you have a definitive principle that is taught in Scripture that reminds us clearly, without question, this is part of the ceremonial law. To take your point on homosexuality, we have clear passages like 1 Timothy, we have 1 Corinthians, we have Romans, where you have definitive New Testament teaching that homosexuality is an abomination to God. So you can't say, well, that's just part of the ceremonial law, and it has no application for today. Good good question. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next caller uh, actually dictated their question. Uh, they write, Dr. Brogy, my family and I recently moved and have been in search of a church home. I found a church who is part of a fellowship of independent reformed evangelicals. Their website is firefellowship.org. It seems they are dressed off of Calvinism. Are you familiar with this organization? And what are your thoughts on a church who is affiliated with this group? I also wanted to ask what your thoughts are on compromising, not on doctrine, but issues like church-ran preschools and Hillsong Bethel worship-style music. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a great question. So let me first deal with the denomination, firefellowship.org. Uh, they're independent Reformed evangelicals, and they're, they're good folks. Um, they have the gospel. Now, would I embrace a lot of the things that they believe in? I, I, I wouldn't. But if you go to their website, and I just opened it up, what we believe are the five solas of the Reformation. If you came into Community Bible Church on the large window behind me, the five solas of the Reformation are on the window. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, Sola, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Um, so I would agree, though, and in the front of my pulpit, Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Again, these are five Latin phrases, and a lot of the phrases that we use today are in Latin. Why? Because the Latin Bible was the virtually only translation of the Bible for a thousand years of church history, and that's why we have so many Latin terms like Trinity. Their first thing is we affirm God and the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity comes from a Latin term. Um, I would differ with them on some points in their doctrinal statement. For instance, point number eight is they affirm a particular redemption. It says, we believe that God's son died at Calvary to effect propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and atonement for his elect people. In other words, I would agree that he effected propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and atonement, but they take it further to argue that he died only 
for the elect people, that Jesus did not die for all. So you could not look at anyone in the face and say, Christ loves you. He died for you. Why don't you receive him as your savior? They would use very couch terminology. They, they would say things like, um, you know, Christ died for those who will repent and believe. Why don't you repent and believe? So it's a couch terminology. They don't believe that when John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world, that world means world. They mean world of the elect, but not world of all people. That's called the doctrine of limited atonement or a particular redemption. So they're um, Calvinistic in not only their um, doctrine of salvation, soteriology, but they're also Calvinistic in their uh, eschatology. So point number 10, eschatology, we believe the Lord Jesus Christ will come again to raise the dead bodily, both righteous and unrighteous. And the righteous shall enjoy everlasting life and the wicked endure everlasting punishment. And that's about the degree of their eschatology. Uh, and I would agree with that, but they would not view any relationship to coming events to Israel because they think the church is the new Israel. John Calvin said that, as did Martin Luther. They said some very awful things about the Jewish people to our embarrassment as Christians. We blush over what those men said, along with Augustine. If you go to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum, so to speak, in Israel, right there on the wall, one of the very first exhibits you go to, are quotations from these men. And it's very embarrassing because they don't really represent, I think, in the truest sense, what God said about the Jewish people in concerning Israel. With that said, would I go to a church like this? I might. If I was in some town where I've moved to, and like these are the only godly people who really are affirming the uh, authority of Scripture and have the gospel and all the other churches are liberal, yeah, I'd go there. I would have to be constantly training my children why some of the things the pastor said I would not agree with, but that's not necessarily bad because you can make them think a little bit. Um, so, uh, again, I, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're good folks and they're my brothers in Christ, um, but we're not right on all these things. Um, there's some things I think they are in error on, and they would say, well, I'm in error, and that's okay. So I love them as brothers in Christ. Um, the second half of the question, you got a caller? I do. All right, so we'll come back to the second half of the question he's asking concerning Hillsong and Bethel music style. So let's come back to that, and let's take this caller. All right, we've got a caller from Savannah, Georgia, on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hello, my brother. Yes, I got a question. Uh, yes. You know that, that y'all people say, well, slavery is wrong. Yet, I don't believe that because the Bible says that Jesus Christ doesn't say that. But the, I say that, that Jesus is the biggest slave owner because of every since the beginning of time to 2,000 years ago to the present time, Jesus Christ is the biggest slave owner because he bought it with his blood. And the Bible says we are slave to Christ. So the only burden he we have with the carry on his behalf is to deny ourselves and carry our cross and follow him. And Christ said, if you don't, if you don't willing to lay down your life and you'll deny your father, parents, sister, you know, for his sake, you're not worthy of him. So, and that's, that's my understanding that, that Jesus Christ is the biggest slave owner of all time. He, 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 he bunch, owns a bunch of slaves, different races, different ethnic groups worldwide. 
But, All right. Well, I appreciate that comment. And, um, and again, words find their meaning in context. If I use the word trunk, do I mean what's at the bottom of a tree? What's out in front of an elephant? What's over a sailor's shoulder? What's behind a car? You don't know unless you hear it in its context. And so when we use the word slave, God doesn't endorse all slavery in the Bible. Uh, clearly, it was a problem the church inherited because when Rome conquered a nation— Uh, Rather than putting everyone in prison, they made everyone a slave, and people were assigned slaves. You could be a born-again Christian, uh, or a city in Rome comes to you and says, here's two slaves, you're responsible for them. And the slave, one slave might be a doctor, another might be a teacher, just whatever they were in the culture from which they came from. And that's why Paul addresses the issue of slavery the way he does in the New Testament, where you could have a Christian master who was given a slave, or you could have a slave who had a Christian master. And he talks about potential abuses on both sides. In doing that, he was not endorsing slavery. But Paul knew that the focus of the Christian is to preach the gospel, and he knew the way to really blow up slavery and to destroy it is the same way it was blown up in England and eventually in the United States. It was through the preaching of the gospel where you had so many abolitionists who were born-again Christians who were convinced that this was an evil that needed to be obliterated. And, of course, even American-slash-African slavery uh, was far different from what it was in the Roman Empire. So God doesn't endorse that kind of slavery, but you are right. We are called slaves of Christ. We're doulos, a bond slave. Uh, It's a slavery that we voluntarily subject ourselves to when we come to Jesus as Lord. And who wouldn't want to be his slave? when you recognize that we're not our own, we've been bought with a price, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and so we are to live to glorify God in our body. All right, very good. Going back to that uh, second part of the question from Dave T., what do you think, uh, what are your thoughts on compromising, not on doctrine, but issues like church-run preschools and the use of Hillsong, Bethel worship-style music in uh, worship services? Well, uh, the preschool thing, uh, that I think is problematic because what that church is communicating, and they do it in a very crafty way very often, they, they wouldn't call it preschool. They would say, come to our learning center. And so your children can be six, eight months, 10 months old, a year old, and, and you bring them into their learning center and you drop them off and they have it all the way until the child is of school age. Uh, that's not God's plan. And a church is really communicating the opposite of God's plan when they say those kinds of things. Um, Look, if you have a group of college students, as I did going to Israel, packed full of bus and teaching them for a week, and I said, hey, how many of you would have preferred your mother to have dropped you off at 7.30, 8 a.m. in the morning, picked you up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the evening, you know, for the first four or five years of your life, or how many would have have preferred for your mother to have been home with you. I can tell you what they're all going to say. They're all going to raise their hand and say, hey, look, I would have preferred for my mother to have been home with me rather than to be dropped off in some institutional setting. What they just voted for was God's way. God's way is for a mother to be a worker at home, for her to raise those children, because no one is going to love them in the same way and the same level, and those are just precious little people that God entrusted to you. And that's time that you can never, ever, ever get back when you give the best hours of your day. But when we 
uh, as a church, say we're going to have a church daycare. And why do so many churches do it? Because that's the only way they can keep their doors open. Uh, They're dying. They've stopped doing the Great Commission. Um, Or some, they want to make more money. We could take in ten, probably $20,000 a month if we used all the facility that we have here on our campuses to run daycare centers. But then we would be saying God's way is not the best way. Now, look, my hat is off to any woman who has to go to work to help put food on the table. And many people who come to Community Bible Church, since the majority of people typically join by conversion— They come with the world's uh, value systems all over them. And as they begin to grow in Christ, they say, you know, it'd be great if mom could come home. But what did they do? They they adopted a lifestyle on a two-salary program. And so they've got a house payment that's predicated on two incomes coming in. And they've made all these moral obligations that they can't just walk away from. But they should try to do everything possible to downsize, to uh, get out of debt, to go back to God's way. Now, um, so again, I suppose if a church had a daycare center for single moms and we want to have a ministry and this is only for single moms, but I have said it many times and no one's ever challenged me on it. I do not know a church in America that has a daycare center just for single moms. And really, if you understood the nature of family better, you what you would be encouraging as a pastor of a church is for that mom to find maybe another family that could take that child in into a home environment rather than to an institutional environment. Now, your Hillsong uh, Beth, Bethel music issue is another thing. Look, the Bethel church movement, they're not a church. They are not a church. They are a false church. So you say, well, tell me why you say You know, Bill Johnson is a false teacher, and he really doesn't represent a church. All you have to do is read his doctrine. He says, for instance, that Jesus was born again. He argues that uh, he was born the first time when he was born of a virgin through Mary, but he was born a second time when he was raised from the dead. No, Jesus didn't need to be born again. Uh, He was never a sinner, uh, never did not have the Holy Spirit of God. He, that's just false. Um, the kenosis of Philippians 3, um, this is a very important doctrine. and talks about how uh, Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a man. And um, yeah, Philippians 2, being found in appearance of a man, uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of even death on a cross. But he emptied himself, verse 7 of Philippians 2 says, and the word there is kenosis, for emptied. In what, um, again, Bill Johnson teaches was that he divested himself of his divinity. While he was on earth, he was no longer God. That's heresy. That's sheer, unadulterated heresy. That he was no longer divine from his birth until his ascension. That's gross error. He teaches prosperity theology. I mean, his argument is if you obey God, God will prosper you. Oh, that didn't work out too well for John the Baptist, did it? because he was a man who had a passionate heart for God and got his head cut off. Um, He argues from Isaiah 53 that it is God's will always to heal. And they take a verse out of context, grossly out of context, where they argue that, you know, Jesus suffered. Let me just read it to you. I'm going to turn to Isaiah 53. And again, this is not just true of him, but it's true of most 
uh, prosperity theology, surely our griefs, or you could render it our sicknesses he bore, our sorrows he carried, and yet we esteemed him uh, stricken of God, smitten of God, and afflicted. So he argues that just as Jesus bore our sin, he bore our sicknesses, and just as by faith you receive forgiveness of sin by trusting Jesus, even so they would say by faith you can receive freedom from sickness. That's not what the text is teaching. Uh, It's a gross uh, misinterpretation of the text. There's no promise in Scripture that God will heal us 100% of the time. Uh, They have schools of prophecy and healing uh, where uh, all of us can be prophets. We can all prophesy. And they take, again, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean if you take verses out of context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 1, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And they'd say, there it is. Paul is commanding us that we should all prophesy. No, he's not. Read the whole chapter. What were they doing? They were exalting the gift of tongues over the gift of preaching. And Paul says, when you come together, my will is that you all, as a congregation, would prioritize the gift of prophecy, or what we would call preaching today. Not to mention, in the 12th chapter, he asks a number of rhetorical questions, because, again, they were trying to get everybody to speak in tongues, and Paul makes it very clear, look, you don't choose your spiritual gift. He says it four different times in the New Testament. You're given a spiritual gift as God wills, as God decides. So he asks, all are not apostles, are they? Answer, no. All are not pro- prophets, are they? And again, it's it's structured in the Greek language where the implied answer is no. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All don't have gifts of healings, do they? No. All don't speak with tongues, do they? No. And so, again, it's a gross misrepresentation of God's Word. He teaches that you can command things to happen, that just as Christ commanded something to happen because Christ lives in you, you can command things to happen. And most of us know this church where they made national news and felt terrible for that mother who lost, I think it was a four-year-old child. And for seven days, they did not bury that little girl. And they had prayer services commanding this child to be raised from the dead. And again, this is not something you even ask God for. This is something you command God to do. And so when you hear this guy, he'll, he'll command all things new. I command that arthritis come out of this hip. You just speak a miracle. Again, that's just heresy. Um, one of their leading speakers describes the Holy Spirit like a blue genie, like an, uh, like an Aladdin. And she says he's, he's funny, he's sneaky. Look, that's, that's heretical. Um, they um, teach what's called grave sucking, where you can lay over the grave of what they would consider an anointed teacher of God, and you would get power by laying over that grave. I mean, it's just heresy after heresy after heresy. So right off, Bethel... They're a false church. And then Brian Houston, who's the head of the Hillsong Church, the lead pastor, he has Bill Johnson speak in his church. Brian Houston speaks in Bethel Church. Look, they shouldn't do that. Suppose a Planned Parenthood, let's just say for the sake of argument, Brian Houston is a born-again Christian. Well, number one, he's teaching not all of the heretical doctrines on the same level, but many of these heretical doctrines that I just named. 
You can go online and you can actually hear sermons by him where he teaches heresy. You say, but some of the songs are really good. Look, just because a church has a, passes the smell doctrinal test doesn't mean that you should use that song. Because when you use it, you are endorsing that denomination, that church, whatever they are. You're giving an affirmation to them. So my illustration that I didn't get to, say Planned Parenthood wanted to do something good in the community. Would I want to link hands with Planned Parenthood? They say, well, there's, we've got this area of highway that's just filthy and dirty, and, and let's get uh, some of the churches in town to come help us clean it up because it's such a mess. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I wouldn't want to do anything with Planned Parenthood. Why? Because they murder little babies. And 40% of the babies that they are murdering in America are African Americans. 40% of the babies that they are slaughtering are African Americans. So don't tell me that black lives matter to them because it doesn't, not to mention their original founder was a hardcore racist. So what I'm trying to say is there is a place for a biblical separation. You say, but some of the music makes me feel so good. Look, it has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with doctrinal purity and lifestyle. Not to mention every time you ring one of their songs in your church, assuming, assuming that you're doing what you're required to do legally and that you get the CCLI license and you pay a fee— a percentage of that money goes to that group, whether it's Hillsong or Bethel or whoever it may be. And uh, they are literally taking in millions of dollars from evangelicals. And so you see at the bottom of the screen, you know, Hillsong music. Oh, boy, I really like them. Maybe I should go to their website and listen to the pastor's sermons. And then you listen to some heresy. Look, that's the way the devil's going to work. He disguises himself as an angel of light. That's how he functions. He doesn't come in with horns growing out of his head and a you know, pitchfork in his hand and cloven feet. He comes as a magnificent, beautiful, glorious angel of light. That's why the book of Jude says false teachers can enter into the church and nobody notices them because they walk, talk like a Christian. They very often, though, have the same historical terms that we use, but they have a different dictionary in which to define those terms. So I would say now that Hillsong has totally embraced Bethel, not to mention wackos like Stephen Furtick, who's one of the most dangerous pastors in America, that to use their music is really, I think, not to do something good. And uh, there were some songs that we used when they first came out years ago, and they were good songs. But I don't want to give endorsement to that. And part of the role of a shepherd, part of the role of a shepherd, of a pastor, is to protect his people. And if a pastor is not willing to protect his people, he should step down. Oh, I don't want to split the church up. My people love Hillsong. Your job is to protect those people from wolves. And Bethel, they're wolves, and now Hillsong, because of their close association with Bethel, they have turned into wolves. And God's responsibility to a pastor is to protect the church from those. So either we're in gross ignorance of what's going on, or we don't want to address the issue because we're going to offend people. 
And so I, I, I don't think it would be healthy for your family to go to that church. I, I would find another church if they're using that kind of music. And I'm assuming this Reformed Evangelical Church is not. I'm, in fact, most of them are using 18th century hymns, which is not necessarily bad, but God does say sing a new song to the Lord, so there's nothing wrong with new music. Uh, there, there's a place for it. Uh, very much, you know, at one time all those songs were new music. Um, but um, my guess is some other song, uh, ch- uh, churches you have visited, and you think, well, maybe we should go to this church, but they use Bethel music. Well, I, I wouldn't go there. I, I would try to find something else. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and William from Stephen City, Virginia writes, I've been a Christian for several years and have failed to bury memorized verses of Scripture into my mind. Being an avid listener to the Search the Scriptures Library messages, I'm now convicted that lack of Scripture memorization must be changed, and to do so will absolutely build up my faith walk toward maturity. Would you suggest my first 25 Scripture verses to start working on? I will. So what William from Stevens City, Virginia needs to do is to attend my Wednesday night series that I'm doing on basic discipleship. Basic discipleship. It's a 45-week course. I won't be doing it every single Wednesday. Occasionally I might be away or speaking somewhere or off, and another pastor will be speaking. But most every Wednesday until we're finished, we're going to go through this course on basic discipleship. And one of the lessons that we deal with is the role of the Bible in the life of the Christian. And I am compiling a list of 100 scriptures every born-again believer should put to memory. And I will make that available to you. And uh, I don't know that there's an order of importance, but there are some basic scriptures that we should know. And, you know, I think we've lost what the early church had. Remember, they didn't have the privilege pre-printing press, what I'm holding in my hands this morning. They, They would have been blown away to think that you could have a codex, a bound book that you could hold with all 66 books of the Bible. So they had, you know, limited scripture. They would copy pages from one another. They would memorize scripture. And this is why it was so important when Paul said to Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of scripture. Because for a lot of people, that was their exposure. They would put it to music. They would memorize it. And I think we've lost a lot of that in the modern-day church. And yet, if we're going to be equipped, well, I know there's a verse somewhere that, excuse me, that teaches the deity of Christ or eternal security, or we need to know some of these verses. And so I'll be putting that together. Uh, That's uh, still some weeks away before we get to that lesson. A given lesson often takes four weeks, and the first lesson is on the doctrine of assurance and eternal security. And we've looked at it the last three Wednesday nights. We'll come to the fourth and final uh, session on that this coming Wednesday, tomorrow night, Lord willing. Let's go to the next question. All right. I think we've got time for one more. And this person would like to know the following. Since the pandemic, my church has not been holding any services, but I faithfully listen to you. My question is this. I am holding my tithe, which is now up to about $2,500. Would it be okay to give this money to someone I know is in need, or should this be given direct? to my local church. The biblical principle is you give it directly to your local church. So even though they're not meeting, even though they're not live streaming and you're dependent on a teacher like myself, it doesn't belong to Community Bible Church. It belongs to your local assembly, assuming they're a Bible-believing church. Now, obviously, if you 
you know, started uh, listening to me. And I know of one couple that did. They started listening to me during this pandemic. And now they realize how far off their church is and that that church doesn't even have the gospel. So, you know, you don't want to underwrite the devil's work. So assuming it's a Bible-believing local church, that's where your tithe belongs. It doesn't belong to Search the Scriptures, uh, which is a, a ministry that I have to spread God's Word. It belongs to your local assembly. Now, if you want to give an offering above and beyond the tithe, uh, that's great, but it belongs to your local assembly. And very often, a local church will also have uh, what we would consider um, a benevolence program so that you can say, hey, there's some people in need who've lost their job, and I want to put this in the benevolence fund, and, and they'll try to you know meet some of those needs. All right, good question. Okay, we've got about uh, two minutes left. Uh, do you want to promote anything about the uh, virtual VBS or the Sunday School Yeah, uh, so let me just say Sunday a, School a minute or two on that. So virtual VBS is uh, going on right now at communitybiblechurch.us. Uh, they're actually doing the life and times of Elijah the prophet, which is my Sunday morning series. And the kids will be uh, examining this great man of God, Elijah, and learning about what God has said about him and the timeless lessons that apply to today. And many children will also be exposed to the gospel. So I couldn't really underscore the importance of this week for a lot of families. There's crafts that they'll show you how to put it together, science experiments, they'll show you how to do it. Uh, So it's really a fun week. Instead of having our big, you know, Friday night blowout where we have a cookout and games and jumpers and all kinds of water slides, um, they're encouraging people to do their own thing. Um, And they're giving them suggestions, what they might do as a family and uh, so it's really a great week. You don't have to do it during the morning hours. They they put together actually 24 videos. So they've really worked hard. They've put together 24 different videos for this week. So let me encourage you to go to communitybiblechurch.us for all the details on the virtual vacation Bible school. I promise your kids will be blessed for your taking the time this week to do that with your children. Well, we are out of time, but we appreciate all the questions that came in, many more that we didn't get to, but God willing, there's always another week and another opportunity. God bless you as you walk with the Lord Jesus. And if you don't have a church home, we are meeting Sunday mornings live, present in the auditorium, social distancing and all the good things you can read about online at 915 and 11. We would welcome you uh, to Community Bible Church. God bless you. Have a great day. Mm -hmm. 